they found him 100% liable even though he was struck by a Jeep going the wrong way on the highway. And every single case we have now, they want to see the qualification file, the drivers to look for any little thing, right? right? right. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this special episode of The Defense Never Rests. We are doing things a little differently today. We are at the TIDA conference in Philadelphia, and we have a podcast booth set up in the exhibit hall. Uh, and our plan here today is just to grab people, pull them on the podcast, and do little mini interviews, and really get to know everyone who's at this conference. So wish me luck, and we're going to just go get some people. Shimon, thank you for joining us at the Defense of Arrest at the TIDA conference, uh, the annual conference in Philadelphia. The first time we've ever done a podcast booth at a conference. You are our second contestant <laughs> to sit down and join me. So I, thank you. I feel honored and privileged <laughs> to do this. So because um, right now I'm in the top two of all people who've actually participated. At a conference. At a conference. <laughs> we have about almost 100 episodes under our belt. So. It also means I'm, I could be second to last or second to worst. Uh, so. Also also possible. Um, so you are an attorney out of Chicago, is that correct? I'm an attorney in Chicago at a firm called the Barge, Campbell, Lyon, and Cahan. Okay. Uh, the firm uh, started in 1997, but I just brought my practice there in the middle of the pandemic oh, wow. uh, on January 1st of 2021. Oh, that... That was an interesting move. How, how did you come about to do that? Like, was, were people scared to move to a, a new firm in the middle of pandemic? So one of the disadvantages is not even being able to meet everybody in right. the firm uh, for several months. There are still a few people I've not actually met in person. But the three other name partners, mm -hmm. I worked with them at a firm called Williams Montgomery and John mm -hmm. in the 1990s. And then I started my own firm with four people where I practiced for 20 years and okay. for a variety of business reasons, uh, it necessitated uh, a change to, a, to the new firm. But yeah. I've known the three principal oh, okay. other partners, uh, name partners at least, for decades. And we've been competitors, but friends. Oh, great. So I ask this of a lot of my guests, whether they're attorneys or in claims, because um, everyone has a little bit of a different story. Uh, and how did you decide to go to law school a lot of people like their parents were lawyers other people decided when they're young they want to be lawyers other people just had were you know poli sci majors and didn't know what else to do <laughs> well, what's your story so first no lawyers in the family <laughs> i come from a very very quick story my dad was offered a scholarship to northwestern pre-med and wouldn't go but he because he thought he was going to be a token at the time in the late 40s yeah and uh he dropped out of engineering school six months without a degree to go work in Israel. Oh, wow. uh, during undergrad at the University of Illinois, I participated in two mock trial tournaments at Drake University. Mm -hmm. And we worked with a professor who was a, an advanced persuasion uh, teacher, and he was testing out his theories. And we were simply the people who were the conduit for testing. And we may not have been the most polished, but we won every case based on the merits of the case. Mm -hmm. And after doing that twice, I just loved uh, litigation. Yeah. And so I looked for that specifically um, for things, for opportunities when I was an undergrad. And that's what brought me to law school oh. later on. 
I like that path. See, I ended up in litigation by accident. <laughs> it was the only jobs accident. that were available. It's the only jobs that were available when I graduated law school. So, and now I know it's like it was the best choice for me in the grand scheme. But at the time, I it was just by happen chance. Mostly. It does prepare you for many things. Yes. Right. People, it does. for example, who do mergers and acquisitions mm-hmm. at big corporate firms, if you want to learn preparation for that, they will tell you become a litigator first. Mm-hmm. Right. Because of how quickly ha- things happen. So as you sit here now, well into your career, is there any piece of advice that you would have given your younger self? I, I give this advice to all of the young people who come through the office and it's up to them if they want to follow it. But I think a, a lot of attorneys will learn by osmosis. So as things come to them in terms of mm-hmm. the opportunities, that's when they start preparing for it. And uh, as much as I think I probably worked hard in my first two or three years to prepare myself, when you're a young attorney, you have to read the rules over and over again. Mm-hmm. You have to learn in advance. So when the opportunities come up and someone brings up a topic, you can say you understand it. So an example right now, if you ask a lot of younger lawyers and even some mid-level litigators, even in trucking, they don't understand truly what the reptile theory is. They've heard of it, right. but if somebody walked up to them who was a client or called or another lawyer and said, we have an issue, they wouldn't really understand A, how it's done, B, how to prepare a witness for it, and C, uh, what are the issues that are going to specifically come out. And if yeah. you don't have a working understanding of that, right. uh, you're, you're not going to be somebody that a client has uh, confidence in Right. for handling certain level and certain types of cases. Yeah, and you certainly see reptile theory come in in a lot, a lot of these trucking cases, right? Because we hit their large exposure, you know, the risks right. are high. Um, and, you know, we're seeing all these giant nuclear verdicts. And, you know, we, I was just talking about this with someone else too, that, we, you know, there was just that billion dollar verdict in Florida. And what do you think the defense bar could do differently to help combat these, you know, nuclear verdicts that we're seeing? I think it's going to be a challenge. So mm-hmm. one of the things yesterday that they uh, that they had the panel for the Young Lawyers Association and they had a jury consultant mm-hmm. and there was talk about, well, who are the jurors who are going to be sitting on panels? And I think that the research is that the, the millennial generation, for example, there's a belief that yeah. they, be, you know, the the numbers that they are used to seeing mm-hmm. are astronomical. Right. My, I have an 18 year old who's a freshman in college <laughs> and all he knows is that there are athletes who mm-hmm. are making millions of dollars who aren't even very good. <laughs> and so uh, reducing and explaining the value of a dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that the, uh, the reverse reptile is probably the most important thing. It's okay. every single thing that can be used uh, that can potentially demonstrate or undermine the credibility of a plaintiff or their experts, which has been part of some of the subjects, yeah. is mm-hmm. probably going to have to be the continued and main focus. Right. Um, the, you know, is, I think you've probably seen, so we had a case in Illinois where the, uh, the, when the jury heard about the background of the truck driver, he was driving on a suspended license, mm-hmm. he had a felony, prior suspensions, every, every bad fact that you can imagine. But 
they found him 100% liable even though he was struck by a Jeep going the wrong way on the highway. And every single case we have now, they want to see the qualification file, the drivers to look for any little thing. Right. 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 And I don't know, I don't think there's a good answer yet, but one of the things that the appellate court found significant, this driver worked for seven companies in 10 years. Mm -hmm. That's actually better than average. The turnover rate's 105%. Wow for truck drivers and that has to be communicated Mm -hmm. right the yeah uh, whether you want to introduce that right I think they said yesterday it's the trucking companies versus the drivers that people have a problem with but uh, I don't think that there is a uh, clear answer right now yeah to again other than really attacking the credibility of every single element of damages yeah um, and liability uh, I think the logs, the electronic logs are going to help immensely because eliminating that is one of the four bad issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, it's been much easier to address logs and issues as to fatigue or um, impairment through uh, being right. tired yeah. uh, with, with logs. You know, every driver's logs are now fine as long as they're preserved. Yeah. So, you know, with COVID, we're seeing this, you know, driver shortage you know, how do you think that's, you know, going to impact the claims in the over, overall trucking industry as we have like just so much less trucks on the road and less people to drive them? And we have the need for more drivers, right. especially <laughs> through companies that are making daily deliveries. Mm-hmm. Right. There was a time, I think, during the pandemic that I was getting some type of yes. delivery <laughs> once or twice a day. And don't you sometimes wonder about that? Like, can you consolidate? Like, why do you have to come to my house multiple times? Is, is there some sort of communication that you can set, bring all these boxes at the same time? <laughs> right, right, right. Is there some way to get it organized? <laughs> I can but, get this more efficient for you. <laughs> but not if you want to actually get it delivered within four hours through one of the specific companies. <laughs> but I think so. In, I've been practicing for 30 years. And for at least 20 years, there have been some type of discussion about the potential shortage or future shortfall of drivers, Mm -hmm. right? And in fact, they said most recently because of going from written logs to electronic logs, it would get rid of some of the drivers who just weren't going to to be compliant with that. And that would make it a, a problem. I think if there was a way to to have more drivers who are on dedicated routes, especially mm-hmm. for the bigger companies, yeah. where they go from point A to point B and come and can be home a few days a week, even if they're gone for two days. Right. Uh, the It's easier on home life because a driver's sure. not away for a week yeah. or two. And it will be more, uh, it would be a more attractive option for younger people to go yeah. work in Get more people in, yeah. But, benefits, mm-hmm. salary, uh, it's always been an issue. Right. And then there's certainly incentive to be a longer haul driver because of the overtime. And you get, I mean, this, the pay can be higher. Right, right. So it's hard. Right, right. <laughs> but in the meantime, some of the companies that they're either driving locally or regionally where they can be home, if they're mm-hmm. providing good benefits, I think that's very attractive to right. drivers. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Um, you know, as you're 
I would call a seasoned attorney. I've been practicing for, you know, 30, you say 35 years, 30 years, <laughs> 30 years, 30 years in November. So you have, you know, you obviously probably have younger associates working for you. And what advice would you give them when they have to deal with like unruly or, you know, plaintiff's counsel that just make their lives difficult? Um, you know, what would you tell them to be like, this is how you keep your cool or not let them ruffle your feathers? It's a good question because <laughs> it, uh, I have seen attorneys who, when they are addressed that way by either attorneys on the opposite side or sometimes judges mm -hmm. uh, because of their inexperience or because they maybe just appear young uh, or based on their demographics, something about right. how they look. Uh, and it will certainly undermine their confidence. And so the first thing is to always uh, room, uh, pause before you react mm -hmm. and if someone else raises their voice to be confident and stern but you don't have to raise your voice back right uh, people who can who maintain a level of composure will demonstrate to the other side that they're not getting a rise out of you yeah and i think this is consistent with something that we see at depositions mm -hmm. where one thing i'll tell uh, a witness that I'm preparing is if the attorney for the other side raises their voice, mm -hmm. they may just be trying to get them angry because when people right. get angry, they say sometimes stupid or inaccurate things. Yes. <laughs> and so whether it's an attorney who is younger, who is being challenged or a witness, if they can maintain their composure and show that they're not going to be flustered by it, they may or may not get a little bit more respect. Yeah. Uh, some, some attorneys on the other side, and there's defense attorneys like this as well, who no matter you know, what you say or how you act, they're, they're still going to talk down to you. Right. Um, but if you maintain your composure, and, and you, know, you can always defer responding. And then two or three times where we've talked about this with uh, younger associates, said, well, what's a better way to respond to that? And how, what would you like to say? Once you know what you'd like to say, you can always put off the conversation for a week or a month. Mm -hmm. I've also, with some attorneys that will say things and then perhaps take things out of context or, or misstate or, you know, misrepresent something, I myself have said, well, we could just have every call with a court reporter from now on if you'd like to do that. <laughs> right. And then after that, sometimes the, they calm down a little bit. the attorneys will be very careful about what they're saying. Right. Yeah. You can't record the conversation without them knowing. But if it's a big enough case, if, if that's how they have to do it to make sure things aren't being misstated, because I think a lot of times younger attorneys feel like older attorneys are saying that they agreed to do something right. and that the judge is always going to believe what the older attorney said, whether yeah. they're a plaintiff or a co-defendant. And I remember, you know, being very, a very new attorney and always feeling like I was getting tricked. And like right. they were, and a lot of times they were probably doing that because <laughs> right. I didn't know any better at the time. So I would overthink everything I was doing to make sure they weren't trying to, you know, pull a fast one or pull the wool over my eyes. Sure. Sure. Not re responding or reacting instinctively. Mm -hmm. Reptile. Right? Yes. Take your time <laughs> for answering the question and think about it. But that applies to everybody. And there isn't any reason why, unless you're in an emergent situation that you can't say, well, let me think about these different issues and then decide yeah. how you want to respond. Because really what you want to do is anticipate what, what the next argument is going to be made, right. right? So that you can articulate it. And also then confirming it. I mean, younger attorneys, this everybody should do this, but 
young attorneys should make sure that they are documenting um, right. accurately, making sure not, you know, one of the problems with email is that people type an email mm -hmm. and they send it off and they haven't really thought about it, how it comes off. Uh, whereas yeah. you don't, you don't know what's being communicated versus what you intended to communicate. Yeah. Right. I mean, exactly. that's one of the dangers of sending an email too quickly. So I will tell younger associates sometimes when they get a nasty email, when you type your response out, don't put anything in the, uh, in the line where you have the, the, two. the, the yeah. recipients. <laughs> yeah. Right? Hold off and save it. You mm -hmm. won't accidentally send it. And then think about your response and wait a day to read it over again and see how it reads to yourself. Yeah, that is the exact piece of advice I got um, when I was a new attorney. And I, I think partner walked in my office, saw me like banging away at my keyboard. And he's like, hold up. <laughs> you need to table that for 24 hours. You need a cool off period. You can't just fire that off. And it was, it was the best piece of advice because it was true. I was angry. I was pounding at my keyboard and I'm glad I didn't send whatever I was going to send out and waited on it because you're right. much clearer the next day. And and you can let the other side know then that they can get a rise out of you. Right. Right. Which isn't fair. And some people maybe want to show that passionate side and they don't they don't care yeah. about holding back. But it depends if that's what the image that you want to portray right. versus what is just coming out. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for for sitting down with us and being our, our second guinea pig. Thank you. <laughs> I, I talked it. too much. No, you did but not. But it was enjoyable to talk about it. <laughs> never, never talked too much. <laughs> well, good luck. Enjoy the rest of your time. Thank you. You too.